what's the name of this podcast again? Serious Heavy. <laughs> what day is it? Who am I? <laughs> oh my gosh. That should be okay. our intro, by the way. <laughs> that that will be our intro. <laughs> Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. We have been on a little bit of a, a hiatus. Now you wouldn't, the listeners would not know that, of course, because what you don't know is that behind the scenes, we recorded all of the previous episodes, largely during COVID times last fall, I would say. Was that roughly when we did it? Yeah, I think so. And so we are now back recording Our plan is we're going to record two more Journal Club episodes, and then we are actually going to go on a proper hiatus over the summer here in the the U.S. And then we'll come back starting again in the fall, and we will, we've got a really interesting season two planned. We can't discuss it yet publicly, but we we think we have a, a good idea for what season two is going to be. But as a reminder, I am Matt Fox from the uh, School of Public Health at Boston University. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Haley Bannock from the University of Buffalo. Welcome back, Haley. Hi, thanks. Really glad to be back. Yeah, it's been strange to have taken a break and to not have a chance to talk about fun method stuff with you for a while. I know, I kind of missed it. It was it was a long winter without you. It was a long winter without you too. So <laughs> today what we are going to do is we thought we would do a journal club in which we talk about the paper that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine by Dagan et al. The paper is entitled, having to actually pronounce this thing makes me feel totally incompetent, but BNT162B2, is that how people pronounce the Pfizer vaccine? This is, you know, neither of our expertise, but yeah, let's go with it. Yeah, so I've never actually heard it, but let's let's just say this is the paper on the use of the Pfizer vaccine. So BNT162B2 mRNA COVID-19 vaccine in a nationwide mass vaccination setting. And the idea of this paper is this is a paper which was, so we've had now the results of the Pfizer vaccine trial for quite a while. And we've known that the Pfizer vaccine is highly effective against symptomatic COVID-19 in the trial setting. And the trial had what roughly about, I think roughly in the neighborhood of 20,000 people who were in the actual trial, which is pretty awesome to have a trial of 20,000 people. But, you know, when you're going to roll this out to millions and millions and billions of people all over the world, it's nice to have some real world effectiveness data. And so this was a study that was done in Israel and they were using data from one of the largest healthcare providers in Israel. So a healthcare provider, which covers about half the country is my understanding. Yeah. And what they did was they essentially wanted to replicate the trial findings in a setting in which you're rolling this out. Now, the reason why this, of course, is important is that trials are always enrolling populations that are different from the populations who are going to get the intervention. You know, often that's because trials exclude some of the sickest people, those who are most at risk for severe complications, those with other comorbidities, when, so that when you take the treatment into the population you use in the real world, you can find different effects. Here, that's not quite exactly the same because the trial 
data did have more, I would say, more inclusive inclusion criteria than what you would probably normally see in some of the restrictive drug trials. But still, they, they didn't include everyone. And so you'd really want to see what this looks like when you do it for real. So what they did was they took the data from this very large healthcare provider in Israel. So we were recording this on March 22nd. And I say that because, of course, the trial data has been available since the end of December. But then the actual rollout of the vaccine didn't start till what, late December, early January. Israel has been the country that has actually had the fastest rollout of any country in the world, I believe, except for, you know, I think there are some, some very small nations who've had very high percentage of patients get vaccinated. But for a reasonable sized country, 10 million people, this is a, a case where you have you know, roughly half the population vaccinated and roughly half that population under surveillance within this, well, surveillance may not be the right word, but but enrolled in this healthcare provider, which allowed them to conduct a study to look at the effectiveness in a population as it was, was rolled out. So the data came from the Sleolite Health Services. I may be mispronouncing that. We can just call it CHS. They use that. CHS yeah. is, is how they abbreviate it. And CHS covers 4.7 million patients, which they notice 53% of the population. They, of course, know because they're the healthcare provider, they know who's been vaccinated and who hasn't. And so what they did was they designed a target trial study, essentially. So we've talked about the target trial approach a fair bit. Essentially, the idea is what they want to do is is emulate that randomized trial that they would do if they could in this very large population by clearly defining the eligibility criteria for the trial, by defining person time to mimic that trial approach, and then to have outcomes that would be similar to the trial. So that's what they did. So they had patients being enrolled in the trial, call it the trial. Remember, it's an observational study, but it's a trial mimicking study from December 20th, 2020 through February 1st of 2021. So end of December through the beginning of February. Again, it's mid-March and we haven't vaccinated 50% of our population. So yeah, this is going quite fast. And so then what they do is they look at who has been vaccinated during that time. They matched each person who had been vaccinated to one person who had not been vaccinated. They matched them on age, sex, what they refer to as sector. So general Jewish, Arab, or ultra-Orthodox Jewish. Jewish, neighborhood of residence, which of course is really important because distribution of COVID depends on where you live, history of influenza vaccination during the previous five years, pregnancy, which is a potential risk factor for severe COVID, and total number of coexisting conditions that had been identified by the CDC. They then followed these people up from the time of the vaccination through the earliest of death unrelated to COVID-19 vaccination, vaccination of the match control or the end of the study period. And then they compared those two groups with respect to five outcomes. So the outcomes that they were interested in were documented SARS-CoV-2 infection confirmed by a positive PCR test, documented symptomatic COVID-19, hospitalization, hospital admissions for COVID-19, severe COVID-19 using the NIH criteria, and then death due to COVID-19. So really covering the gamut of severity of infection that you could possibly have. You will notice that the one thing that they don't have in here, which you would really love to have, is SARS-CoV-2 infection asymptomatic. And in order to get that, you would have to have a population under surveillance. But the reason you'd want to know that is because then that would tell us whether or not the vaccine was in fact effective against not just symptomatic infection, but asymptomatic infection, and therefore the ability to transmit the infection. 
They don't have that, of course, because this is from a healthcare provider state. It's not a population under routine surveillance for SARS-CoV-2. So it'll answer the effectiveness question, but it won't answer the question that people are dying to know, which is, is a vaccinated person unable to get infected and therefore unable to transmit the infection? So we won't know that from this data. So as I said, they enrolled a large portion of the population. So of 1.5 roughly million CHS members who were vaccinated, they included in the study roughly 600,000, 596,618 vaccinated people who were then matched to the exact same number of unvaccinated controls. And then you know, as we noted, they, they followed them forward for a mean of about 15 days, not a particularly long time. But again, that's because, of course, the amount of time that has elapsed since the earliest patients were enrolled was late December. So you couldn't actually follow them for a super long period of time, given that it's only March now. So during those 15 days, they found around 10,500 infections, of which 57% of them were symptomatic COVID-19 illness, 369 of them required hospitalization, and 229 were severe COVID cases, and in total, 49 people died in the study. They then compared the two groups, and what they found was they divided the effectiveness up into different time periods. So they looked at days 14 through 20 after the first dose. They looked at another time period, but the two they were most interested in were days 14 through 20 after the first dose and seven or more days after the second dose. So the first time period, 14 to 20 days after the first dose, is the time period at which we think, based on the trial data, that you would first have some immunity to the SARS-CoV-2 and then the seven days after the second dose would be the time period at which we think you are roughly likely to be fully vaccinated. And so what they found was that for documented infection, there was a 46% and 92% reduction in documented infection overall for the, again, for those two time periods, the 14 through 20 days after the first dose and then seven days after the second dose. So 46% effectiveness after that first 14 days of the first dose and then 92% effective after people were fully immunized. Looking at symptomatic infection, similar rates were 57% reduction and 94% reduction. For hospitalization, it was a 74% reduction and 87% reduction. For severe disease, it was a 62% reduction and a 92% reduction. And for death, they only looked at 14 days after the first dose because they needed the, the numbers and they found there was a, a 72% reduction. Now, I didn't give you the confidence intervals on each one of these, but suffice it to say, given the very large numbers, they were able to get reasonably precise confidence intervals. Of course, your confidence intervals are determined by the number of events more than they are the number of people. So they weren't overly precise. But just to give you one example, the effectiveness for symptomatic COVID, which was 57%, the confidence interval went from 50% to 63%. And then after the seventh day, after the second dose, it was 94% with a confidence interval from 87% to 98%. So overall, they found very similar results to the trial data, which is really, really impressive to see that this life-saving intervention is showing similar effectiveness in the large-scale role out that we saw in the trials. So Haley, I've now done my best to describe it. Tell me what your thoughts are on this particular study. So thank you for that description. It was really thorough and walked us through all of it. I loved this paper and I don't come across that many papers in epi, certainly in, in non-epi journals that I really love. And I loved this paper mm. and I really loved a couple things about it, but I thought it was a really clear and honestly beautiful representation 
depiction, description of such core epi topics. There was nothing fancy in here. There, you know, there's no G methods. There's no marginal structural models. You know, there's, there's none of these quote advanced epi topics. And yet it is such a well-designed study exactly to emulate a trial. And, and we've talked about on this podcast several times now, we've had different guests talk about different aspects of this target trial framework. How do we emulate a trial, etc. And this paper, in my mind, just had everything fall into place for me when you're talking about how you emulate a trial. It took those abstract concepts, those buzzwords that we talk about, like emulating a trial, and brought it into real life. So I thought there was that I loved about it. Um, I loved also that it's a, obviously a protective intervention. And I think oftentimes in epi, in our training and just in the way my mind works, I think about harmful exposures mostly. And it, it kind of takes me a step backwards. I have to rejig my, my mindset uh, mm -hmm. when I'm talking about something protective. So it mm -hmm. was a nice reminder for me of how do we calculate vaccine effectiveness and what is one minus the risk ratio and, and these kinds of topics that we all learn about in our training. But I, as a non-infectious disease person, don't really get to think about all that much. So I really liked that. I also loved just the the statistical analysis related to the beautiful simplicity of it. Kaplan Myers and the, in the supplemental appendices they have life tables and just a lot of principles of epi were shoved into this one paper in particular. And of course the results given that we've been now it's been a, a year and a week since all of the US kind of shut down. Last year it was March 13th and now we're we're March 22nd. So of course the content of this paper is very uplifting and I'm very optimistic and as our listeners will know I am an optimist by training, by trade and so I loved that this paper gave me some optimism that we can actually use the results from the trial which I loved reading about and now like look this is actually real life epi in action and it's working and hopefully covid is going to be a thing of the past once we get our, our vaccination rates up higher and higher so your optimism of course is greatly appreciated because i can see the glass as half empty some of the time and in particular you know i talk a lot with my students about the tyranny of the anecdote you know the idea that you can have all the data in the world and it says that the you know the vaccine works and we know it's really good and then in my case i know two people who have gotten covid after they got their first dose of the vaccine and in my mind that immediately you start to worry like maybe there's something in, in the trials that they weren't looking at i don't know whatever it is and you start to these two stories because that's what they are they're just anecdotes start to have undue influence they in my mind they start to trump the 20,000 people you know in the in the vaccine trials what this does is it then says, okay, you know, 20,000 sounds amazing. Like I, you know, I would love to have studies of trials of 20,000 people and, you know, the trials that we've done of, of pneumonia in the past, we get 5,000 and we're, we're super excited. You know, this is, this was 20,000 people, but you know, when you're talking about vaccines that are going to be rolled out to most people around the world, you, you want to see even more data than that. And this very, as you say, very elegantly confirms the results of those trials. What this study emphasizes to me, though, is the importance of good data 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I don't know your experiences, but I find that if I were to try and do something you know, like this, where I was going to emulate a, a, a trial that had already been done in our observational data, chances are it wouldn't work out nearly as elegantly for me because I wouldn't have a huge data set like this. And the data that I would have, you know, wouldn't be as high a quality. And then you end up with, you know, you try to emulate the trial, but you end up with results that are sort of confusing. Here, you've got a, a data set that is really well positioned to do this kind of thing. It's got the information you need on some of those really important confounders like the comorbidities, like pregnancy, age. Prior influenza vaccination. Yeah, the things that we know would be potentially important confounders, stuff that we don't have. And then you've got good solid analytics behind it to be able to deal with the confounding that we know exists. So for me, this really just brings home the importance of good questions, good data, good methods. Yeah, that I think is a summary of what we all hope to achieve as epidemiologists, right? Good questions, good data, good analyses. Because you're right, there aren't that many data sets. You know, I, I collaborate with some folks at Kaiser and they have access to this kind of data. Obviously, some of the Scandinavian countries are well known for having this kind mm-hmm. of data. And this paper highlights exactly why this data is so valuable because you can't do these analyses with cross-sectional data. You can't even do it with a small cohort. It's like I take your... 20,000 people and raise it 500,000 or whatever, 1.2 million in total. It's just a, a huge number of people that you could never do this kind of analysis. So I find sometimes administrative data gets a bad rap in Epi because people use it for things that it wasn't ever designed to do. Mm-hmm. And this paper is is using data for a purpose that it was designed to do. And so it works out very, very well. Agreed. And when I say good data, obviously good data alone isn't enough because it's it's observational data. And if you've got bias built into that data, just having more of it obviously doesn't solve the problem. So you've got to combine it with solid analytic methods. There are a couple other things going for it here. So one is, I think we do have a pretty good sense of what the confounders are for this particular disease because we have studied it so extensively to try to understand. Now, we don't know everything, but we have a good sense. Number two, the data comes from the healthcare provider, which means the information, this is an assumption because I don't know the data set, but I'm assuming that data on vaccination should be pretty good quality because presumably the healthcare providers in charge of the vaccine rollout should have good information on SARS-CoV-2 outcomes Except, of course, there's probably underreporting of milder cases because those don't necessarily end up in a medical record. But we care more about the severe infection. And, you know, I would assume that severe infection is unlikely to, you know, extensively underreported and certainly not likely to be overreported. And then you've got presumably good data on those on those major comorbidities. You've got clear information about timing events, I think, so that you would be able to define follow-up time well. I'm not 100% sure on that one. I mean, it does strike me as possible that the way information gets collected for health claims databases, you could have some misreporting of the timing of vaccination in relation to infection, but I suspect it's not that common. And so, you know, overall, you're very well positioned. The other thing that I think is has going for it is we do have the trial data. And so we know some important things, which is number one, we know that immunity development after vaccination doesn't start till about 14 days after the first dose. And so you can look to see whether or not you are observing effects in your observational variant that start too early or 
I suppose in theory too late. They didn't see that here. One of the things also that I love about this analysis, and, and it kind of relates to what you were talking about, about comparing the observational data, is I'm so thankful that these results were concordant with the trial results. I'm already flabbergasted at this point with people who say, oh, I'm not gonna get vaccine vaccinated. I'm gonna wait to see what the long-term effects of the vaccine are, or I don't trust the vaccine, or it's implanting a microchip, they're following us all. These are, these are things that I've actually heard on yep. TV or on Twitter or whatnot since the vaccine rollout here. And if this had been a situation similar to hormone replacement therapy, where the observational data says one thing and the trial says another, we would have been in such a mess. It would have been so confusing. And so I don't know if that ever would have gotten published in the New England Journal or anywhere necessarily, but I'm especially grateful that this really does strengthen what we already know. And it's kind of a step up in my mind from what we already know. And I'm just, thank goodness for that. Boy, could you imagine? No, Could you I imagine can't. if this didn't find benefit? We would be... Oh my uh, gosh. And the the magnitudes of effect are so similar. You know, it's it's so consistent, which is just terrific to see. I can't even imagine what would have happened if if they had been discordant with each other. It would have been such a mess. So thankfully we don't have to record a podcast on why those results are discordant. We can talk about how great it is that they are somewhat confirmatory. So then the last thing I want to talk about, and you can have any last words after that, but is this cause cause you mentioned that the effects were the same is this twitter thread that miguel hernan who is one of the co-authors of this paper put out and he talks about some things that were not actually directly discussed in the main text of the paper and so it's it's a really interesting you know bit of backstory but it's also i think really instructive in sort of how you think about confounding in this tweet thread, Miguel talks about the fact that they had to deal with the confounding problems that you get when you move from the trial setting to the observational setting. And they started off by trying to identify what the most likely confounders were. So we talked about those being you know, things like age and prior vaccinations and comorbidities and things like that. So they started off with age and they did the matching on age to try and get control over the, the, the distribution of age in these two populations. Now you could still have some potential residual confounding left over after you adjusted for age. So they adjust for age and then they looked at their results adjusted for age. And they took advantage of this fact that we just talked about, which is that they know from the trials that the efficacy does not start until about 14 days after the first dose is administered. So you wouldn't expect to see any benefit before that time period. And so they looked to see whether adjustment for age alone, they actually adjusted for age and sex. After adjusting for that, they got any of differences in the curves of incident COVID before day 14. And in fact, they did. They found that the curves started to diverge from day zero. Now, again, when you roll out the vaccine, we're not just giving it to anyone, we're giving it to those who are at highest risk first. So at least here in the US, those who became eligible for the vaccine first were healthcare workers and those over the age of 
75. You know, people who are over the age of 75 are those more likely to have severe COVID, but also people with comorbidities. So you can match on age and you should be able to adjust for some of the difference, but not all of the difference. So then they adjusted for more things. So they adjusted for location, comorbidities, healthcare use, and all of those things. And then they see that their curves don't actually diverge until that 14 days. They have this prior knowledge that allows them to have this negative control that tells them, you know, a confounding structure that creates separation in the curves before 14 days would be indicative of residual confounding that hadn't been controlled. And, you know, when I do these kind of things, they never work out this beautifully that the curves actually separate exactly at 14 days, just like they did in the trials. But here they did. And they had this beautiful negative control set up to be able to test that, which I think is an advantage they had going in. Yeah. And I I think there's not that many people beyond you or me that call this truly beautiful. And I know we've both used this. We keep using this word, this beautiful data, these beautiful curves, but it really is like these things don't work out very often. I don't know how many of our listeners have other examples of papers where it really, it just works exactly the way you want it to. And it is in this case, you know, it's, it's very uncommon. And so, yes, I agree for anyone who hasn't read Miguel Hernan's Twitter thread on this. Uh, It's a very nice postscript to the paper itself. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier, I expect our our Scandinavian listeners have more experience with this kind of things working out, you know, beautifully, at least more than I do with my HIV data. But we do have situations where things do work out. They're just not quite as clear as this. It's really impressive. And it's on such an important topic. Agreed. We didn't record the journal club that we did way back when the pandemic started. We did some some journal clubs that we did as just an opportunity to get people together. And we did one on counting person time. It was also a paper by Miguel Hernan and his colleagues that I think for me turns out to be one of the most important papers that you can ever have students read. Because I am more and more convinced that one of the ways we get things wrong in, in epidemiology is by poorly defining person time. And so, you know, these opportunities where people can cross over from different exposed to unexposed when you're doing case control studies, sampling controls that can also be cases, you know, that sort of stuff, I think is just, it may feel like nuance, but ultimately it is incredibly important to understanding how to do these things right. Yeah. And I remember learning about this stuff and it's challenging to wrap your mind around it. And then I remember specifically asking, okay, but how do you do that? How, how actually does that incidence density sampling, nested sampling, how does that actually happen? And, you know, it, it took me a long time. I'm probably still working on it. I'm definitely still working on it to try to understand what some of those concepts really mean. And this paper, I thought, helped further me along in my understanding of, of that a little bit. Yeah, I would like to see a lot more courses developed in in actually doing this emulating a a target trial approach with real world examples that are designed to challenge you on thinking through what happens when you do things incorrectly. So I know at at BU, there is a course where they're they're doing more of that. We do a little bit of it in one one of the courses that I teach, but I think certainly a full half semester course would be a really helpful part of every epidemiologist toolkit. Yeah, 
I also, I appreciated that question Matt was talking about earlier on about wishing we had data on asymptomatic infections. Uh, they talk about how in a supplementary analysis, we evaluated an additional outcome SARS-CoV-2 infection without documented symptoms as an imperfect proxy for asymptomatic infection since mild symptoms may not be documented. And I appreciated that they are acknowledging, we wish we had this data along with all of you. We wish we could provide this answer. What we are left with is a somewhat imperfect proxy. And I appreciated their forthrightness and not kind of glossing over, you know, and trying to sell it for something it's not. It is an imperfect proxy. I think it's better than nothing. I think it's better than not mentioning at all. Is it the perfect data we wish we had? No, it's it's not that perfect data we wish we had. But I thought that was, again, a good learning opportunity for what we can do sometimes with data that isn't exactly what we want to answer the question we have. Completely agree. Well, I, I think that is a perfect place for us to leave it. We want to thank everyone for, for listening. We will be back in a couple weeks with another journal club and then we are we are going on hiatus but if you anyone has any ideas for things or topics you want us to to get into send us a send us an email send us a tweet get in touch before we wrap up i just like to say for those of you who are not members of the society for epidemiologic research i strongly recommend you consider becoming a member membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting it also gets you access to the scr library which has some great learning materials seminars and activities you can find out more at epiresearch.org. I also just want to take a minute to plug our sister podcast, Casual Inference from the American Journal of Epidemiology. If you like our podcast, we think you'd really like that one as well. We appreciate you listening and hope you look out for our next episode.